You've probably heard the common trope or seen the memes that divide humanity into two contrasting segments. Right, the saying goes something like this. There are two kinds of people in this world. And then it divides all human beings into two opposing categories. So maybe something like, there are two kinds of people in this world. Those who follow the rules and those who make the rules. Or there are two kinds of people in this world. Those who make things complicated and those who make things simple. There are two kinds of people in this world. Morning people and those who can't stand morning people. Something along those lines. I even learned this week about something called Benchley's Law of Distinction, which is this. There are two kinds of people in this world. Those who believe there are two kinds of people in this world and those who don't. Well, Revelation 14 gives us the Bible's take on this sort of binary segmentation of humanity into two kinds of people. And what Revelation 14 tells us is this. There are two kinds of people in this world. Those who worship the lamb and are saved and those who worship the beast and are judged. That's the message in a nutshell of Revelation chapter 14. So turn in your Bibles to Revelation 14, if you will. Quick review of what we've seen so far. We have seen in the book of Revelation four cycles, uh, each of which spans the entire age between Christ's ascension and Christ's return, what some call the church age. So if you read a theologian who says something about the church age, they're referring to this whole span of time between when Christ went to heaven and when Christ comes back. And we've seen three full cycles already. In chapters one through three, we looked at letters to seven churches, which yes, were individual messages to these particular congregations, but as a whole, it represented the totality of the church throughout the age and Christ's messages to his people wherever they are and whenever they live in this age. Chapters four through seven, we saw the, the opening of a scroll by the breaking of seven seals and, and Christ as presented as the lamb of God opened the, the scroll by in the seven seals and, and it was really the unfolding of God's providential purposes for human history, again, throughout this age. And it culminated and ended in uh, the final judgment and the return of Christ. With the third cycle was in chapters 8 through 11, where we heard seven trumpets sounded, and the sounding of those trumpets represented God's partial judgments in history on the unbelieving world, again, throughout the age. And chapter 14 concludes the fourth cycle, which began at chapter 12 with the vision of a woman giving birth and of a dragon waiting there, attempting to devour her son. And that attempt failed. And so the dragon then turned his rage toward the church, right? He went to make war with the rest of her offspring, being the people of God uh, throughout the age. And chapter 13 then introduced us to Satan's primary allies in his war against the church in the form of two beasts. And we identified those last week as state persecution, domination of the church by state authorities, and false religion. 
the, the philosophies and, and systems of belief that set themselves up against God and, and deceive people and lead them astray. Another way to frame that would be to say that Satan's primary tactics in his war against the church are domination and deception. If he cannot dominate the church, he will seek to deceive them and lead them astray with false beliefs. And as we saw in chapter 13, verse 10, these attacks call for endurance. And again, at the end of the chapter, for wisdom. Well, let's listen in on John's vision as it continues in chapter 14 and find out what it tells us about the two kinds of people in this world. I'm going to go ahead and read for you the whole chapter and then we'll break it down and walk through it together. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second followed saying fallen fallen is babylon the great she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality and another angel a third followed them saying with a loud voice if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand he also will drink the wine of god's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap. For the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. 
So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. May God bless his word to us. Maybe there's a better way to frame the two kinds of people notion in this chapter. Maybe it's, it's better to say this. You can have Jesus one of two ways, as the lamb who saves or as the lion who conquers. The pictures that we get in this chapter center around Jesus as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and as the, the lion of the tribe of Judah who conquers his enemies. Let's take a look first at the first roughly half of the chapter, verses 1 through 13, that present Jesus as the lamb who saves. So the scene has shifted now from earth to heaven, right? And so where we were in chapter 13, we were seeing the church on the earth being persecuted and uh, deceived by uh, the devil and his agents. And now chapter 14 begins with John looking and it says, behold, on Mount Zion stood the lamb. And I don't think we're seeing literal Mount Zion. Zion was the hill upon which the city of Jerusalem was situated. I don't think he's literally looking at an earthly physical city. I think what he's seeing is the heavenly Jerusalem. This is a scene around the throne room of God and the Lamb in the heavenly New Jerusalem. And he sees the Lamb standing. We were introduced to the Lamb back in chapter 5 when there was a search for who could open the scroll, right? Nobody was found worthy to open the scroll, but the Lamb of God appeared and he alone was worthy to begin to unfold the purposes of God in history. And in chapter 13, we saw the dragon second beast parody the lamb, right? It said that he appeared with two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon, right? So his words were the devil's words. His words were deceiving words, but he had the appearance of the lamb, attending, intending, of course, to deceive the people. But finally, in John's vision, here once again is the Lamb of God standing in the heavenly Jerusalem and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. We were introduced to the 144,000 back in chapter 7 of Revelation. If you'll recall that vision, we saw 144,000 people that were sealed by God before the judgments of the trumpets were to fall. And so before the, the judgment came, uh, God said at the beginning of chapter 7, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. And so then we see a list of all the tribes of Israel, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, but the point of that chapter, and if you want to dig into that argument, you can go back and find our sermon on that chapter. Um, the point of that chapter is that this 144,000 people, who are the tribes of Israel, are not, A, literally 144,000 people, and not, B, only the people of Israel, like ethnic Israel. 
but they represent the totality of the redeemed of Christ. So this is the church. This is all of God's redeemed people who he has sealed with his name on their foreheads. And again, this is in direct contrast to those who had received the mark of the beast, the name or the number of the beast on their head or on their hand at the end of chapter 13. And so an immediate contrast demonstrates to us that the mark is probably something symbolic that represents belonging. To whom do you belong? And these 144,000 standing on Mount Zion in the heavenly Jerusalem with the Lamb of God, with Christ, are his people who he has saved and sealed and redeemed. And there were given four descriptions of who these people are. In verses 4 and 5, we're told that they have not defiled themselves with women, that they are virgins. We're told that they follow the Lamb wherever he goes. We're told that they have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And finally, that they are blameless, that is, that they do not lie. And these descriptions, if we were to take them literally, would make no sense. And in fact, would contradict a lot of other teaching in the New Testament about who the people of God are and about God's purposes for marriage and all kinds of other things. So we should see these descriptions as symbolic indications of the people's redeemed status. In other words, they are the saints. They are the holy ones of God. So if you were to look at those one at a time, they, they are not all literally virgins because then those who are married would be disqualified. And so surely John is not saying, well, all the people in heaven or those who were never married. That, that's not what he's getting at. In fact, the sexual relationship here is a metaphor for spiritual infidelity. So when it says that they have not defiled themselves, they are virgins, he is using sexual immorality as, a, as a, an analogy, as a metaphor for spiritual unfaithfulness, spiritual adultery, which is a very common theme throughout the Old Testament. If you read Ezekiel and Isaiah and even a lot of the Psalms, you'll get this notion over and over again that the people of God were his bride and they've been unfaithful to him by going after other gods. And so it seems here that this, uh, the, virgin, the state of, of virginity of the, the 444,000 in heaven is not a literal physical descriptor. It is an indication that they have remained faithful in their relationship to God. Literally, that they have abstained from idolatry. They have been loyal to God. Uh, that they follow the lamb wherever he goes is surely an indication that they listen to his word. And that they obey his commands, right? The people of God have an ear for the voice of God in his word and a heart to obey. When it says that they have been redeemed as the first fruits for God, I think that that indicates the redemption of the whole cosmos that God is working in Christ. If you remember in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 10, it says that his purpose from before the foundation of the world was to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. And I think the picture we find throughout Revelation is not of, a, of an ethereal, floating, disembodied life in the hereafter. It is, it is a material, physical life in a redeemed, restored earth. And so I think that the fact that the people of God are the first fruits 
of God's redemption is an indicator that there's more redemption to come, that there's a whole uh, universal redemption in view. And then finally, when it says that they are blameless, that they do not lie, it means that they are true to Jesus. It means that among the, amid the pressure, amid the persecution, amid the temptations to uh, wander or to pursue other gods, they have rejected false gods and so remained true in their devotion to Jesus Christ. So to say that they do not lie indicates their true worship of God, even when persecuted. So again, these designations point to the character of the redeemed people of God as those who truly belong to him, those who have remained faithful in their pursuit of him and of receiving his name and identifying with Jesus, even when it's costly. Sisters and brothers, do these things characterize your life? right now? Is your heart faithful, loyal to Jesus Christ? Are you listening to the voice of the Lamb and His Word? Are you seeking to obey His commands and live under His authority? Are you striving to break down false gods and idols in your life that you might devote yourself fully to Him? We live in tension. We have sinful natures and hearts and desires and inclinations that are still hanging on. So we won't do this perfectly. This is not a call to 100% perfect perfection and moral purity. We know that that is not something we're going to attain in this life, in this side of eternity. But it ought to characterize our pursuits. It ought to describe our deepest desires and longings. And indeed, faithfulness to the Lamb ought to be our chief aim in this life. So that's who they are. They're the redeemed people of God. They're those who have belonged to Jesus Christ. They're those who've been true to him, who have rejected the worship of false gods. What are they doing? Look back at verse 2. It says, he hears a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. Now, he does not say the voice, the, the sound that I heard was harps. He says the sound I heard was like harpists playing on their harps. And I think that that is, a, that is indicating that this is joy. This is celebration. This is worship, right? When you look at the psalms of, of praise, you see all kinds of instruments being used, right? The worship God with the lyre and with the trumpet and with the banging of cymbals and with the harps, right? And all these kinds of instruments and the harps kind of represent joyful, exuberant praise. So the sound that he's hearing and it's like many waters and it's like thunder and it's like all these harpers, right? It is an overwhelming cacophony of sound and the sound is joy. The sound is exuberant praise and celebration at the great victory and salvation of the Lamb. What are they doing? They're singing. They are singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders were reintroduced to those characters. We saw them back in the throne room vision of chapter 4 and following. And they're back now. And now the redeemed people of God are standing with the Lamb and they are praising God. 
They are worshiping with joy. They are singing a new song, indeed a song that only the redeemed can learn. Look at that in the middle of verse 3. No one can learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. There is a song. There is a joy that is unique to sinners who have been redeemed. There is a joy and a gratitude and a love that is only born in the hearts of those who have seen the wreckage of sin who have themselves been subject to the darkness of sin and the penalties of sin and who have been pulled from that mire and set upon a rock. And that is the condition of all of the redeemed people of God on that day. There is a joy in this song that only is known by those who have been broken and then redeemed. I'm reminded of 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, where Peter is explaining all of the great benefits of salvation, all these great things that God has, has, uh, has put upon his people, lavished upon his people through Jesus Christ. And he says of them that these are things into which angels long to look. It's interesting that the song is being sung in the presence of the four living creatures and the elders, which are probably angelic beings. The angels aren't the ones singing it. It's the redeemed that are singing it. The angels don't know this song because they are not redeemed. They were created innocent and they've been the servants of God throughout. And so there's something of the story of redemption, the story of being made new and pulled from brokenness and wreckage that even the angels don't understand. They look on it and they marvel at it. And that is the experience of the people of God for eternity unending exuberant praise and joy at the victory of the lamb and so clearly this is a picture of that final eternal state where the people of god are standing with the lamb in the heavenly jerusalem all is made right their sin is behind them the brokenness is undone and they have been restored to him And we see here Jesus, the Lamb who saves. Well, that's one way you can have Jesus. One way Jesus is presented in Revelation and elsewhere is as a Lamb, like the Lamb of God slain as a sacrifice for sin and now standing with his redeemed on Mount Zion. You can have him that way if you come to him in humble faith, if you repent of your sin, you trust upon the sacrifice of Jesus in your place, you can have him as the lamb who brings redemption and salvation to you. But remember, when the lamb first came on the scene in chapter 5, he was actually introduced in a different way. Because as John was, was weeping, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll, it said one of the elders said to him, look, weep no more. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And so you can have Jesus as the lamb who saves, or you can have Jesus as the lion who conquers. And the rest of this chapter, verse 6 to the end, is a portrayal of this conquering, lion-hearted Jesus. And it is sobering and heavy. 
And it's divided into two sections. I would say that the, the first group of verses, verses 6 through 8, are, or 6 through 13, are judgment announced. And then verses 14 through 20 are judgment carried out. So there's an announcement of judgment coming, and it's given by three angels. Look at verse 6. I saw another angel flying directly overhead. So we're no longer in heaven in the vision. We were in the heavenly New, New Jerusalem. Now we're down on the earth and looking up to the skies. All right. And so there's an angel flying overhead, and it says he had an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth. And this time, it's not the technical term earth dwellers. We've, we've talked about how those who dwell on the earth, usually in Revelation, is sort of a, a, a particular word that's designated for unbelievers, earth dwellers. And this is actually a different phrase. It's a different word. And so this gospel is intended for all human beings to hear. And you can that's illustrated even further by where it says uh, from every nation and tribe and language and people. So this angel flies overhead with an eternal gospel, and he's proclaiming this message to everyone, everybody who lives on the earth. And the content of this angel's gospel proclamation spotlights coming judgment, doesn't it? There's an eternal gospel to be proclaimed. And what he says is fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Surely the saving message of Christ's atoning death and conquering resurrection are to be included in proclamations of the gospel, but it's a good reminder that our proclamation of the gospel must include the bad news of sin and the warning of judgment to come. If we skirt around that because it's uncomfortable, we're not proclaiming the gospel. It's not enough to say Jesus died and you can have him as your lamb who saves you. Saves me from what? We've got to talk about sin. And we've got to talk about the consequences of sin. And we've got to talk about the judgment of God's wrath that's coming upon sin. And so this eternal gospel spotlights the judgment that is coming. And he calls all people to worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Look to God, acknowledge him as creator, worship him, fear him, give him glory, because judgment is coming. That's the first angel's announcement. There's a second angel in verse 8, and his announcement is this. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Now historically, Babylon fell during the 6th century B.C., so Babylon has been fallen for a long time. So clearly here it is not the literal city of Babylon or even the Babylonian empire, but is a metaphorical stand-in for every godless city or state power. John's readers certainly would have heard Rome. They certainly would have had Rome in their minds when they heard of Babylon. And other New Testament writers like Peter, in fact, kind of make that comparison. And the reason given for Babylon's coming judgment, the judgment of this godless city, is that she's made the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And I think here, again, as in verse 4, where sexual defilement was synonymous with idolatry, here, sexual immorality is a metaphor for spiritual adultery. 
It's not to say that sexual sin can't be included in God's judgments. It certainly is and will be. But I think the message here is not literal immorality. The message here is that through the coercive and deceiving powers of the state, of the godless city of Babylon, people have been led astray to worship false gods, to abandon the true God and reject his gospel. Tom Schreiner says, the focus is on spiritual harlotry and prostitution. Babylon will face judgment for encouraging the worship of false gods, spreading worldwide the message that it is good and right to rebel against the one true God. Isn't that the message of the world? Isn't that the message you see loud and clear in our own culture? It's good and right to rebel against the true God. It's good and right to cast off the constraints of sort of moral traditions, right? Why would you fashion your life after some old-fashioned book that was made by men and handed down? It's, it's out of touch. It's, it's out of date. You're on the wrong side of history, so to speak. This is the message of, of the world, the godless empires of the day. So in other words, the godless city is coming to an end. The systems of human authority that set themselves up against God and lead people astray to rebel against him and to worship the beast are coming down. When the angel says, fallen is Babylon the great, he is saying, these systems are coming down. They're not going to stay. The lamb is going to topple them once and for all. And the third angel in verses 9 through 11 offers his warning, and it is the most dramatic warning and intense warning, and it concerns those who have given their allegiance to the beast, those who have given their allegiance to this godless city, the godless state. He says with a loud voice in verse 9, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. The mark again indicates their allegiance to the state, to the systems of belief and authority that reject God, which in Rome and in many places in our own world are a prerequisite to economic prosperity, right? Unless you say that the emperor is God, unless you worship the emperor of Rome, uh, then you are excluded from buying and selling, from, from the, the trade of the economy. And again, uh, the warning about the, uh, the mark of the beast was that those who refused to get the mark would not be allowed to buy and sell. So economic prosperity is at stake in refusing the mark, that is in, in refusing to, to worship the false gods, and refusing uh, to give allegiance to this godless city. And so for those who have given their allegiance to the state in this way, it's, it's an indication that the accumulation of wealth and material resources is more valuable to them than the glory and honor of God, their creator. If the choice is honor God and starve, or reject God and give allegiance to the state, and receive economic prosperity and benefit, then I choose economic prosperity at the expense of the honor of God. 
That is what sin leads people to. And that is what the devil, the dragon, is aiming to deceive people toward. And the angel makes it vividly, potently clear. Allegiance to the kingdoms of this world will be rewarded with the undiluted, unmitigated fury of the wrath of God. For unending ages to come. Now, whether the images of fire and sulfur are to be taken literally is uncertain. But what is abundantly clear is this. God's just wrath is inescapable for those who give their allegiance to the wrong kingdom. There is no relenting. There is no mercy. There is no point at which he goes, okay, you've had enough. It doesn't stop. The wrath and the fury and the torment goes on and on and on. And did you notice it says that this torment goes up forever and ever is in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. Did you notice that? Often we talk about hell. We talk about eternal judgment as a separation from God, right? We, we, we talk about it in sort of common terms as saying that those who don't trust in Jesus will be separated from God, out of God's presence. There's a sense in which the torment of hell is not the absence of God's presence. It's that God is only present in his anger. I think it may have been R.C. Sproul who said something along the lines of, this is the presence of God without the mediating work of Jesus Christ. This is sinner in the presence of holy God with nobody to stand between. And that is a fearful place to be. And that is the destiny of those who reject God, of those who give allegiance to the wrong kingdom, the kingdoms of this world. And verse 12 says this, here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And isn't that interesting? Don't miss this. This warning is for us. This is not just a warning for unbelievers. It is that. If you continue in unbelief, if you continue giving your allegiance to the beast and, and you don't come over to the kingdom of, of Christ, that these judgments will befall you. But it's intended for Christians. This calls for endurance of the, the saints. The saints are not those who will endure these punishments and drink the wine of God's wrath, but that is the case precisely because they persevere in faith and remain true to Jesus Christ, even in the face of great pressure and persecution. We ought to hear warnings like this. We, we, we like to bring in our, our Calvinist theology of, of sort of security and, and, and say, you know, like, God saved us and nobody can undo that and so it's all good to make ourselves feel a little better about warnings like this. But let's not take the teeth out of those warnings. Let's, let's let warnings like this penetrate our hearts and say, listen, we're all for perseverance of the saints. Those who are truly regenerate, truly born again, truly belong to him will persevere. But that's exactly what they'll do. They will persevere. They will continue believing. They will remain faithful. John says elsewhere in one of his letters, those who have gone out from us 
indicated by their leaving that they were never of us. Don't be the ones who profess faith in Christ and who go to church and who do the, the Christian things and then when the pressure is on, walk away. Because guess what? You don't get to be standing with the Lamb on Mount Zion. You get to be in the presence of the wrath of God because you did not persevere in faith and by your lack of persevering, you demonstrated you never truly belonged to him. These are warnings that we should take to heart. Warnings like this are intended to, to motivate those who profess faith in Jesus to remain in the faith, to persevere in the faith. As Jude exhorts his readers in uh, verse 20 uh, and 21 of his letter, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And then he celebrates just a couple of minutes later to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to glory and honor and dominion. He is able to keep us from stumbling. He will hold in his hand all those who are truly his. Let's lean on him. Let's persevere in faith. And then there is this glorious interlude, this sort of break between the announcement of judgment and the execution of judgment, where there's a voice. Look at verse 13. I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. I love that detail too. He's like, hey, I want your people to hear this. I want the people who are going to read your book to know that this was said. That don't, don't, when you're writing your vision down and trying to think about what to include, don't leave this out. Write this down. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. It's better to be dead in the Lord than to be alive under the pressures and persecutions and trials of this earthly system. Dying in the Lord is blessing. It's good. Psalm 116, 15 says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. The good deeds and faithful, uh, oh, excuse me, the next thing that we hear is from the, the Spirit of God himself. And this is the first time that, that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is, is, uh, is speaking in the book of Revelation. It says, Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. In other words, the good deeds and faithful witness of Christians throughout this age of tribulation give testimony to our redemption through Christ. And so those who have persevered in the faith and been true to Jesus Christ, even when the pressure is on, even when the consequences are severe, and we've chosen the honor and the glory of Christ over our own economic well-being, over our own comfort and relational health with other people in our lives. When we remain faithful to Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God says, you are blessed indeed. When you get here, you're going to rest. You're going to rest from your labors. Praise God. By the way, that blessing statement is the second of seven such blessings in the 
book of Revelation. The first one came at the very beginning of the book, in chapter 1, verse 3, I believe, where it said, Blessed are those who read aloud the words of this prophecy and keep what it says. And this is the second one of these blessing statements. Blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. And so dying becomes a blessing because it ushers us away from this fallen, wicked age into the realm of God's peace and rest forever. As one song puts it, it is not death to die, to leave this weary road and join the saints who dwell on high, who found their home with God. It is not death to close the eyes long dimmed by tears and wake in joy before your throne, delivered from our fears. Blessed are those who die in the Lord. So judgment is announced, and now, verses 14 to 20, judgment is carried out. There's two harvests spoken of here. And I believe that they are the harvest of the righteous for salvation, followed by the harvest of the wicked for judgment. Look at verse 14. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. Who do you think of when you hear the phrase, the son of man, and when you hear the fact that he's uh, on a cloud? Remember, Jesus himself said in Mark 14, you will see the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. And we've seen the vision of Daniel, one like a Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days and receiving an eternal kingdom that's been repictured and recapitulated in the book of Revelation more than once. So this Son of Man, who's seated on a cloud and he's wearing a crown like a king, this is Jesus. This is King Jesus, the conquering lion. And and there's an angel that comes and tells him that the hour to reap has come. And so he says, the harvest of the earth is ripe, so put in your sickle. And so Christ swings his sickle and harvests the earth. And I think that this is a, a harvesting of the saints. This is a gathering of his people to himself. The saints of God of every age are gathered to him and delivered forever from the toils and trials of this life into the joy of his eternal kingdom. So he puts in his sickle and all who are his are gathered to him. And now that they're gone, the scene is set for another harvest to come. And in verses 17 through 20, I think we see the harvest of the wicked for judgment. And it is a sobering image. There's another angel. And this guy's carrying a sharp sickle. He appears in verse 17. He too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar. So the angel with the sickle comes from the temple, right? The place of God's presence, the place of God's dwelling. And the other angel comes out from the altar. I'm going to point that out in just a, why that's significant in just a minute. And it says he's the one who had authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth for its grapes are ripe. Okay, so you've got an angel with a sickle from the temple. And you've got another angel from the altar. And he says to the sickle angel, hey, it's time to go get the grapes, right? To to get the clusters from the vines. Now, I want you to remember 
Back in chapter 6, verse 9, when the fifth seal was broken, as the lamb was breaking the seals and the scroll was opening, when the fifth seal was broken, John saw the souls of martyred saints under the altar. And they were crying out to God for justice. They said, how long, O Lord, our God, until you judge and avenge our blood? Because they had been wrongly killed. And God told them in that place to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow saints had been martyred, right? Until the full number of those who will be killed just as you have, have come in. And then when the final seal is broken in chapter 8, verse 5, there's an angel from the altar who's carrying a bowl with the prayers of the saints. The prayers of the saints were what? Lord, avenge us. Lord, bring justice right the wrongs that have been done against your people. And the angel from the altar comes with this bowl and he pours it out on the earth. And that becomes the judgments of the trumpets that we read about in the next three chapters in Revelation. God's judgments upon sinners, partial judgments, but throughout history. So I think maybe this angel who's from the altar, who has authority over the fire and calling to the one with the sickle is that same angel. And therefore, the judgment that's to come about when this angel harvests the grapes is in answer to the prayers of the saints. That prayer that was uttered back in chapter 6, verse 9, Lord, how long until you avenge us? How long until justice comes? This is the answer to that. Justice has come. The destruction of the wicked is the justice of God in answer to the prayers of his people. And so the angel with the sickle harvests the clusters from the vines. Look at verse 19. He swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great wine press of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. 1,600 stadia is about 184 miles. And as high as a horse's bridle, about as tall as a person. So the image is literally of a sea of blood. This angel of God enacting the justice, the judgment of the Lion of Judah. Creates not wine in the wine press, but, but blood. Those who have sided with the unholy trinity of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. Store up for themselves the unbridled wrath of a holy God. And this gruesome, gory picture symbolically represents his inevitable fury visited upon the souls of those who have not taken refuge in Jesus Christ. It is a sobering thought. It is a brutal scene. It's difficult in some ways to even take in. Maybe unsettling to our consciences. Is this right? Would the prayers of the saints lead to this kind of bloodshed? But hear this. 
the certain reality of the coming judgment of God upon the wicked in all its bloody horror and relentless fullness and finality is utterly essential to our hope. We hope for a kingdom that's better than this one, right? We hope for a world that's more just than the world in which we live. We hope for a world where innocent are not trampled upon, where the poor are not taken advantage of. We hope for a kingdom where justice rolls down like waters, where peace endures forever, where lion and lamb lie down together, where swords are bent into plowshares. And if that hope is to be a reality and is to be something that we can count on, then there must also be a reckoning on a world that has rebelled against its king and trampled his good creation underfoot. A kingdom where evil is not forcibly removed is a kingdom that can never be fully free of it and thus can never be truly righteous or whole. So if God is not willing, if God does not have the heart or the authority or the power to forcibly remove evil from his world and rightly judge wickedness, then he is not able to set up a kingdom that's just and to set up a kingdom that's unstained by sin. And so as sobering and horrifying as the notion of this sort of worldwide global judgment and death and this image of all of this blood coming from the winepress of God's wrath, as horrible as that is and difficult as it is to take in, it is the ground upon which our hope for a just kingdom rests. If Jesus is to be the righteous king that his word says over and over again that he is to be, then he also must be the holy judge who deals with sin. And so here the warning that judgment is coming. And it ought to inspire compassion in our hearts toward those who are on the wrong side of this equation. Those who are storing up for themselves wrath. May it lead us to faithfully and courageously present Jesus and his gospel to as many as we'll hear. Well, there's two kinds of people in the world. Worshippers of the lamb, worshippers of the beast. There's two kinds of harvests that are coming. The harvest of the righteous for salvation, the harvest of the wicked for judgment. And you can have Jesus in one of two ways. You can have him as the lamb who saves or as a lion who conquers. How will you have him? Who will Jesus be to you? Will you bow the knee to him? Acknowledge your sin before him. Ask for mercy through the blood that was shed for sinners on the cross. And so receive eternal life. Or will you push him away? Cast him aside. Remain in your sins. And receive from him not mercy through his shed blood, but the righteous judgment 
demanded by your own sin. How will you have him? Let's pray.